Hello, and welcome back to our latest installment of Eye for an Eye. We are your hosts, Julia, Lisa, and Matt, and we are here to determine whether the punishment, or lack thereof, fits the crime. Due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised. Good evening, and welcome to what we're sure will be another disappointing season of Pirates Baseball, and another awesome episode of your favorite's Eye for an Eye podcast. I'm here tonight with my lovely co-host. This is Lisa Jules. Tell them what's up, ladies. Hello, son. Hello. How's it going tonight? It is a beautiful day today, and I'm very sad I'm not outside. I would like more sun, but that's all right. Yeah, we'll take what we can get, Jules. This is like the fifth sunny day of the four-month year we've had so far, so we're just taking what we can get. We can't all be in St. Lucia, which, by the way, y'all tan looks fire. I know. I don't want it to fade. I need to, like, get out and get some more sun. For those who don't know, Jules just got back from her honeymoon after what was the best wedding ever. 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 I'm still tired from all of the events. I believe it. I didn't go on the honeymoon. I'm still tired, honestly. I was that wedding. I was like, I was like 4:30 in the morning. I was like, I'm the last person awake today. Is special. Yes, it is. Lisa, you took the words right out of my mouth. We have a special guest all the way in from Los Angeles. Tell him who it is. Be Nairo. Give him a shout, buddy. What? What? Chime in. What's going on, brother? Hey everyone, how's it going? Appreciate you having me on today's podcast and uh, this one's going to be a doozy. I actually did a lot of research. I felt like I was back in college for a little bit, watching videos and reading stuff. So I really appreciate everyone having me and I'm really looking forward to it. I love that. So for those of you guys who don't know, Brandon is a good friend, one of my best friends, one of our best friends in this group of friends that we have, we're very blessed with. He has a journalism background, which is a very unique perspective to bring to this case. As you heard him just insinuate, this dude is a researcher extraordinaire, and he is currently residing in Los Angeles, which is unique because, as he said, we have a very interesting case today that ties into the Los Angeles area. So, without further ado, let's get started. On August 20th, 1989, Beverly Hills, the normally quiet, idyllic, upper-class neighborhood of the affluent community for the stars and ultra wealthy was rocked by a scandalous and gruesome murder double murder of husband and wife jose and kitty menendez it was an unusual murder scene in a number of ways obviously because of the high profile neighborhood but also because of the evidence of how these murders had come about there was no evidence of a break-in burglary armed robbery gone wrong, or even any indication that the killers had broken into the house. Even a professional, perhaps mob-related hit was investigated in the deaths of Kitty and Jose because of the efficiency and ruthlessness of whoever the killer was. Both parents were found in their living room, violently murdered, while their two sons, Eric and Lyle, were supposedly out for the evening. Keep in mind, this was a wealthy family and their 20 and 22-year-old sons, respectively, at the time supposedly had some lavish spending habits to go along with a flair for self-absorption. Vapid LA Gen Xers, wicked combo. We're talking about the 90s here, where early 90s, where money was thrown about. Before you continue, can we talk about the names first, too? These two played lacrosse. 
Eric and Lyle. Right. Like, come on. Like, they were it just like, like it screams like Yacht Club. Like Yacht Club members. Wasps, bro. For sure. Wasps. Very, yeah, very waspy, yuppie. Yeah. Yeah. In the era where that was becoming a fad, is what I would say. Like, being absorbed in yourself, dressing like really nicely all the time and trying to look wealthier than you even were. And these guys played into that. But that night, they alleged that they came home from a night out and found their parents blown away in their living. Both of them with... Blown away in their living. <laughs> Please, wait till you hear all this. You'll see what I mean. What a descriptor. Have you never heard somebody being blown away? That's what it is. All right, listen. So when police arrived on scene, the brothers told them that the murders occurred while they were in a movie theater seeing Batman and then attended the annual Taste of L.A. Festival at the Santa Monica Civic Center. So they'd been out for the evening and said they discovered their parents dead when they arrived home. But they were disgusted at how brutal the crime scene was. Jose Menendez was shot in the back of the head with a 12-gauge shotgun which, if you're unfamiliar, is powerful enough to completely remove your Capra from its tative state. My what? It decapitated the man. Oh, I didn't know what you said, but it wasn't that. Removed his Capra from its tative state. as in Got it. Kappa. Got it. Got it. Yes. Without being so. Misheard that one for sure. No, it's all good. That was intentionally vague. But yeah, he was pretty much dead with uh, one shot without failure. Kitty Menendez was awakened by the shotgun blast that killed her husband and was immediately shot in the leg. She was then shot several more times in the face and torso to the point that she was unrecognizable when crime scene investigators made it to the house. And I know we've talked about this before, but when that happens, like overkill, meaning that one of those shots probably would have ended her life and then they shot her more times, that really shows you there was some rage there. That's important to think about throughout this case. Absolutely, Lise. Great point. I'm glad you used that word overkill. We're going to talk about that a lot in this case because that was one of the investigators deciding factors when they were weeding out suspects. So at the time, obviously, their police are shocked at how gruesome this is. They suspect maybe a robbery went bad. Somebody had been targeting them and they, they were envious of their lifestyle and their status. They even considered that it might've been a professionally designed orchestrated hit because of just how lethally ruthless it was. There was no evidence that anybody had broken in. Since Eric and Lyle were out of the house at the time of the murders, police never had their clothes tested for gunshot residue and didn't immediately consider them suspicious. Eric even exclaimed that when investigators arrived at the house, he was on the front lawn screaming, someone killed my parents. Keep in mind, we're talking about Beverly Hills, California. One of the wealthiest communities in all the world. Naira, back me up on this. If you haven't seen Fresh Prince, come on, like anybody who knows. but like, I mean, yeah, that goes without saying. It's funny that you brought up they were at a taste of L.A. and Santa Monica. I was actually just there last weekend with our other good friends. David and Kiona and Jared as he was visiting. Oh, wow. How cool is that? So we're talking about now an event that's going 31 years back. And Naira was just there this past weekend with a couple of our friends. That's dope. That is dope. Small world. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We're talking about high profile folks here in a wealthy community. I mean, 
This is a savage double homicide that took place surrounded by socialites, actors, the trust fund crowd, people who are living in gated communities for the reason that like they don't want to hear about things like this, you would assume. And there's no evidence of any break-in. So neighbors were terrified the prospect that a psychotic killer could be running around in their bubble, their little world, undetected. However, it soon became apparent that while something nefarious was obviously at hand, their terror may not have been justified, unjustified, I should say. Because in fact, the killers were closer to home than they ever could have expected. As the investigation into the murders of Kitty and Jose Menendez unfolded, the truth that came to light was actually even more shocking and hit closer to the community than they ever could have imagined. So as the investigation would soon reveal, the family's picturesque lifestyle in L.A. masked a dark secret, one that led the police much closer to their home than they ever initially thought possible. This is the story of Lyle and Eric Menendez and a case that shocked the world for its brutality and wide-reaching profile. For those of you who aren't familiar, this happened in 1991. So we'll talk a little bit about some of the background of the family and then we'll get into the actual investigation. Jose and Kitty Menendez, let's start there. They were a well-off, well-liked couple of Cuban-American background. They were a wealthy family their total estate being estimated somewhere in the mid-seven to low eight figures. Jose came from a prosperous family who lost part of their wealth to the Cuban government, but he came from wealth in Cuba and then emigrated to the United States. After graduating from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, he met his wife, Mary Louise Kitty Anderson, in 1963. At that time, Jose took his CPA exam. As all this is going on, he's becoming a CPA. He's growing his career. They lived in New Jersey area and had two sons, Joseph Lyle Menendez and Eric Galen Menendez, who were born in 1968 and 1970, respectively. Lyle, as he became known, was born in New York, and then Eric was born in Gloucester, New Jersey. The family lived in New Jersey for most of the boys' young adult lives, and they actually, ironically enough, attended the Princeton Day School, which is, strangely enough, where I was born. Not Princeton Day School, but in Princeton. You were born in a school? I was born in Princeton. I misspoke a bit, but it's right along those lines. They're in the same town. One of the funny things about this case, too, is after doing some research that Jose Menendez is kind of comparable character-wise almost to how Tony... Montana is in Scarface. Almost look similar. They're both Cuban immigrants, both very highly successful people. Funny, they do look a lot alike. I never really drew that relation, but you're right, they do. They do. And the high profile nature of this case connects because this is like a Hollywood style type of everything was on court TV and everything. So I just thought that was interesting. Yes, dude. I'm glad you said that. We'll get into that. I don't want to delve off into that yet. But yes, I agree. That's a great tie to draw because i mean obviously tony montana was a cuban immigrant but this case was that same type of flashy lot going on everything every day was an updated new shit show i agree i like that comparison actually it was really cool the boys growing up had some money they came from a little bit of affluence 
Lyle was actually a star tennis player who attended Princeton and seemed destined for a career in business like the father he allegedly worshipped and aspired to be like. Eric, actually, his younger brother, turned out to be even better at tennis, which was helped along by his father's obsessive intervention to the point where he was telling him every day what he was supposed to be doing with his life and forcing him to do it. But he ended up becoming a nationally ranked player in his age bracket. In a sense, they really had no choice but to be successful. Jose was known as being a pretty hard-line, hard-working father who would work his children to the bone in athletics and school, driving them to be successful. Which, I mean, hey, we've all had a little kick in the ass from our parents, I'm sure. Everybody has their own perspective on where that line is, though. Right? We can all agree. In 1986, Jose's career takes a pretty big turn. And granted, he already has an illustrious career going. And he's offered a job with RCA Talent Agency based in Los Angeles, California, where the family moves. Jose would actually grow to become a well-known figure in Hollywood and worked as an executive for RCA, which is a very successful agency, one of the largest and most successful in California. He was known among show business celebrities and had a successful career in the industry, as far as everybody could tell. He and his wife were active members of the community, married for 20-plus years. They were well-known amongst both the celebrity and socialite networks in Los Angeles. They assimilated very quickly. Jose's sister, Terry, later testified that there were a lot of positive things about Jose and Kitty, and there were a lot of negative things. I find that interesting because I don't know if it was on this show specifically or not, but I swear I've said it to at least you and Jules, Matt, that when people are victims of crimes, rightfully so, you always hear that they were like the best person on the planet. Every Investigation Discovery Channel show is like, this was like the straight A student. They were the most liked. They were the best parents. They were blah, 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 blah. But I like that in this case specifically. And we see these kind of things as well. And like, of course, a Gypsy Rose Blanchard case, which we'll cover as well. But I just found it interesting that there was some honesty here, it seems like, with the way people talked about Kitty and Jose. I agree with you, Lisa. And we talked about that recently with Natalie Holloway. Right. Like when her mom flew down to Aruba, she was telling people, don't give them the full story. I don't want to hear that she was all fucked up all weekend. And that's so real because like you you don't always get the full story. And in this case, I wonder if there was more validity to it because people continued to say it and continued to reiterate it. That yeah, they had a really nice life, but there was a little bit of a a dark side there, quote unquote, or They had a little bit of family strife, quote unquote. So I agree. It's something worthy of note to say more than one person came forward in this case to be like, yeah, they they were a nice family, but there was good and bad there. I also want to make it clear just based on the background that you've given, where they live, what circles they're running in. As someone that lives in this area, it's really important to note that these people live extremely detached from reality when you're even when you're driving through these neighborhoods or going through different parts of los angeles especially where they were located in beverly hills these people 
don't quote unquote live in LA. They're in their cocoons. They have people that, that, that bring everything for them. They have drivers, they have personal chefs. These people don't live normal lives. That really needs to be emphasized because a lot of people get caught up in the glitz and the glamour and how cool everything is perceived to be by these people. I can speak for myself and I'm sure the rest of you can chime in. They're just not relatable people. Their problems are not our problems. And they're pretty much completely detached from, you know, the rest of the people that live in LA and then probably just in the country as, as a whole. <laughs> the rest of the planet, really. Yeah. Like. They just have so much more access. They have access to luxury vehicles, different services that people just can't afford. That's something I've really started to understand as I've lived out here a little bit longer is that that's probably the most important distinguishing quality between people who live those super lavish, rich lives. And then normal people like us is just their access to things that we just can't fathom. I appreciate that, bro, because honestly, that's something that we don't always associate with these cases. Like we did the case about OJ, right? That was the first case we ever did. And one thing we did not detail in that was how much more, not only for the public's perception, how much differently the media and the police have to look at these cases too. Because obviously there are people who care enough to know like there was a double murder in Hollywood and or double murder in Hidden Hills or double murder in Beverly Hills or Calabasas. Like if you hear about one of these neighborhoods where you associate with ultra wealth, you don't associate violent crime necessarily. So when people hear about these things, it's almost like in the media and the police profile and their coverage of it is completely changed. And that's something we also want to make note of because that is definitely weighing in on this case here. And Nairo said court TV. We'll touch back on that, but that's something else. And that also relates back to OJ, which happened a couple of years after this, but something definitely of note. It's also typically these type of cases where it involves super wealthy or athletes, things like that. They're almost always swept under the rug as well. They're really not getting the type of airtime that let's say gang activity like in South Central is getting or the homeless problem in certain different areas. So tip, this is a pretty rare situation, I feel like, because it escalated to such a level where it was just such a unique and polarizing case. But I would say for the majority of the time, anything involving celebrities or, or people that are in the limelight, this type of crime is almost always swept under the rug and really not like paid attention to as much as it really should. I wonder if that's because they're paid off, but we can dive down that rabbit hole. Oh, I could get real deep in that rabbit hole, especially with athletes. Don't even get me. We should make that a series. Oof, girl. I mean, of course, these people have... Hush money funds. Yeah. They just, check. just to pay off lawyers, just for their legal teams. This is not a new concept, right? This has been going on for forever, basically. Just like the wealthy, the wealthy and powerful people, just because they have it, they feel like that they can use it to pay off people for their advantage. I love, there's a law and order quote that says laws are different for the rich. And he says, what laws for the rich? Honestly. Terry, Jose's sister testified as we said a lot of positive a lot of negative things about kitty and jose terry described her brother as being charismatic and driven 
She also said that she saw Jose make other people laugh, quote, all the time. Terry said about her brother and sister-in-law, I love them. They were great people. That they made a mistake in raising their kids, that was their problem, not mine. But I loved them. Wonder what that means. And I, I, and we were talking about it a little bit just now. Honestly, this she implies the way that they brought those kids up in that wealthy, detached is a great word, Nairo lifestyle of like we're living out in Hollywood, doing our thing, and that's a really strange way to say it, though. That was that she's mind you, she's talking about two people who were just murdered brutally. Who are dead. And she said yeah. that was their, they raised them wrong. That was their problem, not mine. Like, yeah, duh, but like, what a weird way to, like, what a weird thing to say when talking about two dead people who just got like pretty savagely murdered in their home. I don't know. Rubbed me weird. I feel like you can even see some of this type of the way that she described the parents in like practical examples, I can think of at least three or four people that we grew up with personally that were super sheltered, cut off from, you know, the rest of the world, detached once again, is using that. And almost every single one of them got into some sort of trouble. They were never acclimated to normal culture. It just felt like they were so reserved and not really in tune with reality so that they rebelled a little bit. And then they're at where they're at because of their decisions. That's something you see a lot with people that are shut off, if you will, as they're grown up by either their parents or other members of their family. Absolutely. And you know what's crazy, Brandon, you'll have to come back when we cover these cases because this should also be a little series of its own. There is legitimately a defense called the affluenza defense that it was used on a few different cases, one of which I definitely want to go over. But Essentially, not to give it away before we actually cover the case, the whole defense, and I shit you not, this was a real defense, and in one of the cases it worked, was they were so rich, the the defendant was so rich and out of touch with reality that they didn't know any better than to commit the crime that they committed. And it worked. It worked. Oh, it's, you're going to, Brandon, you're coming back for that case because it is wild. But it's exactly what you just said. There's a whole world out there of just rich people getting away with crazy shit all the time solely because they're rich. And it really does speak to the fact that money really does buy you everything. I want someone to use the defense. I was too poor to know the difference. <laughs> if that works at all. I literally could not afford to not know that. No. <laughs> Well, well, the government and obviously society in general just hates poor people. So the system is obviously set up against them from the jump. That would never be like a viable type of thing for them to say. If a rich person said it, oh my God, he doesn't know any better. If a poor person said it, he's white trash or whatever, send him to jail. I wish I could remember the line before because it rhymes really well with it. Like, we should all pray like the minister says. And I know the government administer AIDS. It's something like that. It's a really fire line when you hear it, but the next line stuff too. Terry's husband. Let's talk about Terry's husband. Carlos Baralt testified that he'd known Jose since 1960. He and Terry lived very near the Menendez family for the majority of the time that they knew them and they socialized with them very often. 
Carlos acknowledged that there were some negative things to be said about Jose, but also described Jose as a, quote, jovial individual, very charming, extremely talented, very intelligent, and a great guy to be with. Carlos said he liked Jose very much. Now, I want to know where this... Now, he said there were some things that could be mentioned about him that were negative, but where did this perception come from then? Because this is important to note. We'll get a bit more into the complex views that people had of Jose and Kitty because it was not all sunshine and roses. Actually, they interviewed a number of people and apparently Jose had some serious issues could be described by many different adjectives used by witnesses, including belligerent, manipulative, powerful, rude, nasty, never satisfied, aggressive, frightening, intimidating, cruel, harshest person I've ever met, had to win, overbearing, confrontational, demeaning, abusive, sadistic, sarcastic, controlling, fake, secretive, demanding, cold, competitive, arrogant, angry, belittling, strict, possessive, ridiculing, humiliating, stern, obnoxious, unfair, and ruthless. Apparently, it was a few and far between the number of people who would actually show some of the good qualities in his family and his secretaries being some of the select few. So, if you've never heard any of those words, I've been called them all at least once. But it sounds like the guy is an asshole to people that he works with and is very... We've all seen the show Entourage, or at least Nairo and I know have. He sounds like Ari Gold to me, like uh, a douchebag, to be honest. Somebody you wouldn't really want to work for and wouldn't want to spend time around. Quote-unquote family man. Quite a family man, right? Yeah. Real real uh, community guy, as we say. Now let's talk a little bit about Kitty as well. It was alleged that she suffered from depression, pretty severe depression, was subject to mood swings, had angry outbursts, was extremely concerned with appearances, had low tolerance for frustration, could be aggressive when frustrated, and that she suffered from some chemical dependencies as well, and that she had secrets which she characterized as, quote, sick and embarrassing. Which we will definitely be delving into a little bit. Yes, we will. I feel like this is a description for 85% of Americans. Well, I was going to say, this it's one of those things, Naira, where it's like it sounds like from the way they're described from outsiders that there's this big monster hiding under a rock somewhere that we're not seeing. And it's like, I wonder how many of those exist around the world and how many people have them, just don't know about them. It's a pretty typical archetype. It's like the strong, successful husband and then the depressed, addicted to like Benzo's wife. That seems to be like a very common trope in Hollywood, at least for those those types of couples. The husband makes all the money and is psychotic at some points and he's like super competitive, but the wife just bored at home because she has way too much money to do with, addicted to, you know, antidepressants and probably wine and stuff like that. That plays into the whole idea that wealth can't, my, money can't buy you everything. Money can't buy you happiness. It can buy you things that would make life a lot easier. But as we see that, unfortunately, money can't fix the chemical imbalance in your brain. 
and it can't fix your shitty husband. So something to think about. It can fix a lot, though. So give me the money. Pay me the money. I want the money. But, you know, we'll give it a try. Yeah. Stay single. I'm going to travel a lot and never stay in the same place for more than a month. So I'll be good. Give me the money. And if you want to donate, go onto our Patreon. It's Eye for iPod. <laughs> if you want to support the show, or we have a Patreon, or you could Venmo us. We're always ready for a little bit of a, a Venmo. Shout out, make that's, us rich. <laughs> that's if you want to help us get rich and have the money. And we'll let you guys know how it goes. But anyways, I want to say, because we've talked a lot about these people here. I don't want to speculate. We didn't know these people, and obviously we get all this information secondhand after their deaths. But I believe it is still important to note because the alleged motive for their deaths invariably ties back to their personalities and relationships they led in their lives. We have to shed light on the duality of people in that same token, as if to say they weren't all sunshine and roses. You don't want to disrespect the dead. That's one thing I've said many times. I don't care about what gripes you may have had in life. You don't disrespect the dead. But if investigating their murder, you can't also acknowledge that there may have been some correlation between their personality and their death. And you're potentially missing out on, especially in this case, the real crux of the whole outcome. And the particular relationships we're obviously scrutinizing here are with their sons, Lyle and Eric. One month before she was shot to death, Kitty Menendez actually told her therapist that she was, quote, worried about Eric and Lyle, concerned for their lack of conscience, narcissism, and sociopathy that they exhibit. It was later alleged that Kitty and Jose's deaths were attributed to a strained relationship that had existed throughout their sons' lives and not something she had just recently noticed. Summer, August of 1988. Kitty Menendez is in a therapy session with her doctor, Dr. Lester Summerfield. Dr. Summerfield actually saw Kitty about 90 times from February 27th to August 16th, 1989. So 87, 89, they saw each other about two, three times a month, we'll say. According to court statements by prosecutor Lester Kuriyama, Kitty expressed her concern about her sons and their having done the residential burglaries that had recently happened in Calabasas. And she asked Dr. Summerfield to refer her to a psychologist who could help her sons. Dr. Summerfield gave three names to Kitty of children's psychologists, one of whom was Dr. Jerome Ozeal. Dr. Ozeal met with Jose and Kitty on September 30th, 1988. He didn't recall if he also met Eric that day, but he said his first documented session with Eric was October 4th, 1988, and his first session with Lyle was the following day, October 5th. Dr. Ozeal's last session with Lyle, prior to the murders, occurred January 24th, 1989. Dr. Ozeal continued to see Eric periodically leading up to the so wait, how old were they when they were seeing this guy? I can't do math. 19 and 21. And then up until they were 20 and 22. They were in their late teens, early 20s. And they were referred to this doctor by their mother's therapist. He's not exactly even a child psychologist. I guess it would be a psychologist. 
because they were in their late teens. What we don't know now what information Dr. Ozil gave Jose and Kitty or what the context of their conversations was regarding his meetings and conversations with the boys. Dr. Ozil met with Jose and Kitty several times, but we do know that at some point he told them their sons may be a danger to them. That is something worthy of note. Can you imagine hearing that about your kids? That like, hey, just so you know, you want to be wary of them because something's brewing and it's not looking good. Yeah, they may be a danger to you. It's like, what? Honestly, wouldn't you think like, oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe they, they couldn't have known, but I'm thinking like as their parents, wouldn't you think? I guess that's why they put them in therapy in the first place, though. I mean, they're absentee parents. They probably weren't there for a lot of stuff. They probably hired maids and stuff to raise most of the kids while the mom was doing a bunch of drugs and chilling in her room and the dad was berating people in public. It's a very good point, Naira. They may not have known. That's my thought. I'm not trying to point blame. We obviously don't know the ins and outs, but like this didn't just happen. Yes, more than one incident, absolutely, James. It can be said that something led up to this. There was, there was definitely more than one incident. When we go back and we do the eye for an eye portion of this, we have to consider emotional disturbance and psychological abuse. What do we think happened? And do we think that weighs in on the punishment? But anyways, we'll get there. On or about right around February of 1989, Dr. Summerfield sees Kitty again. According to court statements from Dr. Lester Kuriyama, Kitty expressed concerns again about her son's sociopathy. From February 8th to June 21st, Kitty had not seen Dr. Summerfield. She did not go. But in July of that year, 1989, Dr. Summerfield did see Kitty. And according to the book, Blood Brothers, Dr. Summerfield's notes from the session read, Kitty worried about Eric and Lyle. Concerned for lack of conscience, narcissism, sociopathy they exhibit, wanted more info. A month later, Kitty and Jose were shot and killed by their sons. After their deaths, both Eric and Lyle stated that they were driven to murder by a lifetime of abuse at the hands of their parents, especially sexual abuse at the hands of their father. They described Jose as a cruel perfectionist and pedophile. Meanwhile, their mother was described as an enabling, selfish, mentally unstable alcoholic and drug addict who encouraged her husband's behavior and was also sometimes violent toward the brothers. Tale as old as time. Right? They're alleging now that their parents have been abusing them for their entire lives. Based on Kitty's suspicions of their behavior as potentially being dangerous, in her interview with him, she told him as much. He later told attorneys that after he looked up the definition of the term sociopath, he told Kitty how given the description she had given him about her sons, that they didn't really fit that description. However, Dr. Summerfield told her 
that when Kitty asked him to define the term sociopath, he looked it up but didn't render an opinion on whether the brothers actually could have fallen under that category. So his story changes a little bit. That's something worthy of note. Because at the time, I'm sure she was asking the question saying, do you think my kids might be psychopaths or sociopaths? And he's saying, oh, I, I, I don't see indication of that. But then after the fact, when he was asked again, and they've just killed their parents, he's like, ah, oh, I may not have given her that description. I may have said it didn't exactly fit the profile, but I couldn't rule it out. I feel like that's like a de facto diagnosis for this type of thing, too. While I do understand that mental illness definitely plays a part in some of this stuff that seems to be the first thing that's always run to it's like oh he, he or she wasn't in their right mind and they weren't able to make decisions but clearly they went to princeton they're very well educated they have access to everything so that type of a categorization just seems to be lazy like that and dare i say it's the opposite they really thought out this decision yeah if anything, there, there were events leading up to it. And I agree, Nairo, that so often gets just blanketly generalized and said, what? They just must have been crazy. Not even to get into which form of mental debilitation we're even talking about. We're just saying, like, they're, they're fucking crazy, man. It's like, that's such a lazy and such a basic cover over on everything. It's like, well, we don't really know what it is. But they, they were just nuts. I do think on the other hand as well, though, it's hard for anyone to conceptualize a quote-unquote normal person doing something like this or a heinous crime or even committing a crime in general, right? Because the average person in an average society, you think, follows rules, understands that killing people is not a good thing. And for people to rationalize that, because as humans, we want a better understanding of the whys and hows and how could this happen. They have to pin it on something else, which I get at the end of the day, right? Like what just happened in New York with the gunman. Like people are going to say, ah, he was crazy. Like, ah, like this man was absolutely nuts. And obviously crazy isn't the best word because it's used often to stigmatize people with mental health. But many people are going to point to this man must have had further mental issues. There's no way he is sane. But then you think about it and it's like maybe he absolutely was. I have a question maybe we don't know the answer to. Did the mom and or either of the boys discuss any of their, any of the alleged abuse in these meetings? Because rather than saying they're sociopaths, which I'm not saying they are or are not, but if they're suffering from abuse at home from one or both parents, that's more likely, in my opinion, to help rationalize what happened versus just to blanketly say, oh, they're sociopaths. My sons are sociopaths. Well, maybe your sons are suffering and they have PTSD. Do we know if that was disclosed? Great question, Jules. I honestly don't see any indication of that that they ever mentioned in any of these therapy sessions, either the boys or Kitty. But later we'll talk a little bit about the back and forth that went on between Lyle and Dr. Ozeal and a little bit more about what was said between them and then also what Eric said to him later because there was some weird 
exchanges there before we finally find out. Do they see him? Is that like an element of the FX show or no? It, it was so long ago that I really don't remember. So I'm glad we're doing this as like a refresher, but I just didn't know if he played a part in that, but that's irrelevant. I don't know to be honest, but anybody watching that or anybody listening to this should watch that show. Check it out. Let's talk a little bit about the investigation. Now we've gone over the background. We realized there's some weird hinky family shit going on here that we assume that most people were not privy to prior to 1989. As we originally stated, that wasn't all known to the police at the outset of this investigation, right? Like there's no evidence of a break in burglary, armed robbery gone wrong. No indication of the killers broke into the house. If anything, it looked very professional, mob-related maybe, because of the efficiency of the hit, and any angle like that was investigated. None of those investigative paths turned up any leads. Police, for a period of time, were perplexed for a number of reasons by these shocking murders. Who would have the capability to so viciously murder two middle-aged parents? And how could someone have gained access to their home in an otherwise very safe community? And namely, above everything, what was the killer's motive if they didn't steal anything and had just violently decided to murder these people? What was the point? Initial interviews conducted had police looking everywhere for leads. Neighbors were questioned, local employees, regulars on the block such as gardeners, service workers, friends of the Menendezes, etc. Nobody could explain what had happened or why anybody would have wanted to murder them. No obvious motive had to throw police for a loop, you'd think, because they're probably beginning to wonder why the victims would have ever been targets of someone so violent whom they might never have met. Side note, one critical factor in determining victimology is to analyze the nature of the crime committed. This goes back to what Lisa said about overkill, particularly with violent crimes. Determining victimology is actually very useful in figuring out the personal relationship of the victim and the perpetrator. If the victims and killers knew each other personally, it's more common for crimes of passion or overkill, as Lisa said. Overkill is essentially showing the killers that they didn't just want the victim to die. They wanted them to suffer even posthumously be defiled sometimes. And we're talking about, there are dozens of examples of this, of where, whether it be a domestic incident or it be uh, family related, anything, I mean, where the, the people who are so violently killed or shot so many times or stabbed so many times knew their killers very well and even might've had a relationship with them. How does that affect the case we're talking about today? The severity of the murders on the crime scene, the caliber of the weapon chosen, the number of shots fired, the lack of evidence of a break-in led police to believe that Jose and Kitty might not have only known, but had an intimate relationship with their killer. Police started to circle back and look closer to the lives of the victims to see what may have happened. As the investigation continued, police believed that the brothers were most likely the perpetrators, since they actually did have financial motives. 
and were liberally spending money in the wake of the murders. That's something else that we should note here. We talked about the affluence and the detachment from reality and the money is just second nature to just spend it without any regard for human life. And after their parents' deaths, Lyle and Eric just started blowing through money, man. I mean, in an attempt to get a confession from Eric, the police actually even convinced Craig Signorelli, one of Eric's close friends from high school and a tennis buddy, to wear a wire while having lunch with him. In the Menendez brothers' trial, their defense attorney called Dr. Ann Burgess to testify about her analysis of the Menendez crime scene. Her profession was as a professor of psychiatric mental health nursing at the University of Pennsylvania. She also had a clinical practice and engaged in clinical research in the field of victim trauma, child sexual abuse, child pornography, and crime scene analysis. Smart lady. Dr. Burgess worked with the FBI to formulate a methodology for crime scene analysis. She testified that there are three classifications of homicide by crime scene. Disorganized, mixed, and organized. If that doesn't make sense, disorganized, like, chaotic. Mixed, somewhere in the middle, and organized, almost like professionally done, with very little ambiguity. It was done quickly, no bullshit, they intended to kill somebody, and they did it lethally and effectively. Dr. Burgess was asked to apply her guidelines from the FBI crime classification methodology to the crime scene in the Menendez case. She reviewed all of the crime scene photos, autopsy photos, forensics reports, medical examiner's reports, police reports, anything that pertained to information relating to the crime scene. Dr. Burgess also read the medical examiner, Dr. Erwin Golden's testimony, and read Detective Leslie Zoller's testimony. Based on her review of that material and all that she had seen, she was able to make some classifications about the Menendez crime scene. The crime scene analysis indicated that this was a, quote, domestic killing because, quote, there is no forced entry. There was no movement. The bodies were not touched. They were left as they were. What is called the death scene was the same as the crime scene, and they were not moved. There was no evidence of material being taken from the house, no theft. Even the doors to the house, there's no break-in, and there appeared to be no break-in through the gates. The purpose of classifying a crime scene as either organized or disorganized is, as she quotes, it speaks to the amount of planning that can be determined from just looking at the crime scene. The investigating purpose of analyzing a crime scene, as we've been planning or looking, is generally to alert the investigating officer where to focus their investigation. What type of person, what relationships are they in, and who should they begin looking for? In a disorganized crime scene, there are generally a smaller amount of planning to avoid detection. So that makes sense. If they're just rushing in, kick in the door, spray everybody, you're not stopping to clean up. You're not wiping down anything you might have touched. You're not wiping off fingerprints and bullets and picking up shell casings. Like, it's just you walk in, you shoot somebody, you walk the fuck out. In an organized crime scene, 
it shows very few clues, elaborate planning, and to the point where there's usually no apprehension of the suspect because there's no evidence to indicate they were ever there. The Menendez crime scene had indicators of both organized and disorganized. But generally in this crime scene, Dr. Burgess saw evidence of disorganization. After we analyze all we know about the crime scene, it shows us that the criminals were probably closer to home than initially suspected. They didn't take the time to clean the scene. They didn't take the time to move the bodies. They didn't take the time to dispose of them. They just killed them right there and left them there. Didn't wipe anything. Didn't do anything. And then they proceeded to call the police. That's interesting and worthy of note because without ever even having been on scene, Dr. Burgess was able to find, piece together pieces of evidence that she could see and say, wow, it actually seems more like this was done by somebody closer to home. Can we talk about how the Menendez brothers also, though, basically lived my dream of just getting a bunch of money and going and blowing it on clothes, cars, food, living my dream, basically. After we analyze everything about the crime scene and use Dr. Burgess's input as a reference point, we're looking closer to home. What we find is that there was an issue with Eric and Lyle's, shall we say, lavish spending habits that alerted the police to their increased suspicion of the boys. In the months shortly after the murders, and as Nairo just said, these guys were living the dream, police connected their lavish spending habits to the murders of their parents. Lyle bought a Rolex watch, a Porsche Carrera, a $132,000 townhouse in West Windsor, New Jersey, and Chuck's Spring Street Cafe, a Buffalo Wing restaurant in Princeton, New Jersey. Good for him. I wonder if the wings were good. Was it worth it to buy the Buffalo Wing restaurant? Fortunately for society as a whole, I don't think he had it long enough to ever find out <laughs> if he ever got to try the wings. We are talking about Lyle. Lyle got a Rolex, a Porsche Carrera, a townhouse. He got a wing joint, right? Eric hired a full-time tennis coach, competed in a series of tennis tournaments in Israel. They actually left the Beverly Hills mansion unoccupied and decided to live in adjoining condos in nearby Marina Del Rey. Just piggybacking off of that little blurb there. It's funny that we talk about how lavish their spending is, but that is par for the course in Los Angeles. Yeah. That well, car, like that, the Porsche Carrera, for instance, I see a handful of those cars on my street. This was 1989. So you're right, but we're talking 1989 numbers here. Right, but I'd, I still think that applies. The money out, like that, it's, it's lavish spending to 99.9% .9 of us, but for the people that live out here, that's like pretty poor for the course. You'd be, you'd be very surprised. They drove around LA in this Porsche Carrera and in their deceased mother's Mercedes Benz SL convertible. They drove, they just like chilled in LA, dined expensively, went on overseas trips to the Caribbean and London. It's believed that in the time between their parents' murders and their arrest for their parents' murders, 
these cats spent somewhere around 700 grand. 700 grand. But the suspicion of the brothers for their spending was later disputed by family members who stated that there were no changes with their spendings before and after the killings. So, Nairo, to back up what you just said, that, it ain't shit to these people. They were literally just going about their business according to some of their friends. Not even a change in their spending habits. I'm posing the question to all, all of you on here. How quickly do y'all think you could spend $700,000? And I will go first. I could easily spend 700000 in a week. Give me a, if you give me a week, easy. Oh, yeah. If I was that excited, yeah, I could probably blow it real quick because. It's if, not, it's not hard. Yeah, because if you just let me loose with all the things I'd like to do and buy. See, I, I could definitely do it because I would be putting like. 500 grand of that into like real estate investments like right no that's no that's that's not that's not an option it's not an option okay but not investing let's talk about like spending spending talking about like spending it it would take me probably a month because i would go on like the most lavish vacations you could possibly imagine me with you yes private lease i'm talking like private jet to fucking wherever and then private jet from there to wherever else like we're going from Ibiza to fucking Morocco to Bali to Bora Bora and then stopping in LA to have dinner with Nairo on the way home. And like, <laughs> yes, hopping in the PJ. That's another thing. Everyone in Beverly Hills has a private jet. Got one, Jules. Got one. I mean, like, that's where I would be. Yeah, it'd take me about a month, but I would definitely be living in that month. I wouldn't even look at the account and then I'd go and like swipe for a bottle of Dom Perignon and they'd be like, this, this account has nothing in it. Like, I don't remember what the exact math is or what the exact conversion is, but you know how people say like to a really, really wealthy person, like $1,000 is equivalent to like $1. What do you think $700,000 would be equivalent to for like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk? What do you think that percentage would equal out to? Money wise, like, like, so it's like, no, I see that's not even that's basically, yeah, that's literally changed to them. Isn't that fucking banana? That would be that would be like, okay, so like, that would be like them going to McDonald's and getting the any size drink for a dollar. That's pretty much what seven hundred, like, that's like what that is to those people. It doesn't mean any, it's a drop in the bucket. Like, if you told me I was able to double my net worth right now, I'd be like cool, I'm, I'm chilling for a while. Like, I would be able to be like, I'm good for at least 10 years. I, I honestly think I could live off that for like at least 10 years. I certainly could not do that. So I, I applaud you for that. <laughs> Dude, I definitely could. Nuts. So shout out uh, the Patreon. <laughs> we were talking about their ridiculous spending habits, but some people alleged that there were no spending habit changes from these two. They were just these rich dudes who had money to blow. And didn't change anything that their parents died. They just inherited that money on top of what money they already had. Police were suspicious enough, though, to, as we said, contact one of Eric's good friends, a gentleman named Craig Signorelli. They sent my man to lunch with a wire, hoping to get him to incriminate himself and at least mention that the brothers were involved in the murders of their parents. When asked... And Craig straight up asked him, did you kill your parents? 
Eric said no. But he did eventually confess to his therapist, Jerome Ozeal. Now, in a huge violation of doctor-patient confidentiality, Dr. Ozeal actually recorded it and told his mistress, a woman named Judalon Smith. Smith later broke up with Ozeal, and she's the one who finally told the police about the brother's involvement. Now, apparently, Judalon Smith and Jerome Ozeal had a very rocky relationship. She claimed he was controlling and abusive and allegedly attacked her. And that's when she ended up leaving him and contacted the Beverly Hills police to reveal that the Menendez brothers had confessed to their parents' murder. And that she had a copy of the audio taped confession. Doesn't client or doctor patient, whatever, whatever, like cease to exist if you confess to murder? No, only if there's a third party involved. What, it, what, do you, what does that mean? So like the patient privilege is held even if it is like a violent crime. Like what changes it is if there's a third party involved, somebody else who is either in the conversation or involved in somehow hearing it, which in this case was his girlfriend, Judy Smith. I was going to say, he's like the scummiest guy of all time. I, f I feel like I don't really care if there's even a third party involved. I'm on the, of the belief that no one should hear any of that shit. I don't know. It's just how I view it. If you're in a session with a therapist or psychologist or something like that, that's to me, that's like asylum. Like all bets are off. You shouldn't be able to say anything. But I really thought that if you were going to hurt yourself or hurt others, they could breach that. No? Like, as Matt said, there has to be someone else involved that is not the actual, like, medical practitioner. It would have to be, like, a girlfriend or maybe a friend or something like that. Well, isn't it also and if they're an imminent threat or if there's an imminent danger? Like, if you told your therapist, I'm going to go tomorrow and kill everybody in my school, they'd have to do something. But because this had already happened, it makes it a little different. Right. That's what I was going to follow up by saying, maybe because it was already done. Yeah. But that's exactly what he that up. had already been committed, and it was after the fact testimony. Smith and Ozeal, they had an issue. They had, obviously, a lot going on in their relationship. But I don't know if it was to be vindictive or just to be chivalrous, cavalier. I don't know what her intention was. She actually is the one who gave the audio confessions over to the police. As a result, Lyle was arrested on March 8th, 1990, and Eric turned himself in three days later after returning to Los Angeles from Israel. Both were held without bail and held separately from each other. In August of 1990, Judge James Albrecht ruled that the tapes of the conversations between Eric and Ozeal were admissible evidence since Ozeal stated that Lyle allegedly threatened him and violated doctor-patient privilege by bringing in a third party. Albrecht's ruling was appealed and the proceedings were delayed for two years while they went through that process. A little convoluted much, but took another two years to run through that. The Supreme Court of California ruled in August of 1992 that most of the tapes were admissible, excluding the tape in which Eric discussed the murder. 
After that decision, Los Angeles County Grand Jury issued indictments in December 1992, charging the brothers with the murders of their parents. Let's talk a little bit about the trial. Because the trial was its own quagmire of a lot of shit going on. As you'd expect with any high-profile Hollywood murder, the media coverage surrounding the case was maddening, insane. The media grabbed hold and wouldn't let go, as the 90s often showed, because people were drawn into the real-life drama of court television. To piggyback on that, too, because now we're in 2022, because of social media, specifically TikTok, this is kind of seen like a pretty big resurgence as far as the popularity of the Menendez brothers. And I was reading an article last night and it was highlighting how there was a group of Gen Zers that were posting videos of the Menendez brothers in a sexual way on TikTok because they thought that they were attractive while they were giving their testimonies and stuff, which is absolutely insane. Dude. That's crazy because we're going to talk here momentarily about the following, the obsessive, creepy following. I mean, like cult-like following that these guys gained while they were on trial for having murdered their parents. It's weird. It it reminds me of how there's some people that um, sexualizing these mass murders, like a Charles Manson or like a Ted Bundy or something. Or, oh my God, he's so attractive. Oh, completely forgetting that he just murdered a ton of people. What so, never happens about Edmund Kemper, though? I don't even know who you're talking about. Let's see, Lee Scott got it, though. Because he ain't cute. He ain't cute. Yeah, he's also like, not and ugly as hell, right? The hypersexualization of these people that committed murders and ruined people's lives, I just think is... It's a little disturbing to me. Like, it's just sick and twisted. It's a weird psychological phenomenon that people actually find that stuff, like, attractive or, like, whatever. I've seen girls that post pictures of Ted and Bundy as their Man Candy Monday. What is wrong with you demons? Well, then, also, too, by casting Zac Efron in the Ted Bundy movie on Netflix. Like, come on. He's a babe. Right. And I'm sure that didn't help at all. Right. Yeah. No. I argue with that. Ted Bundy's a good-looking guy, man. Honestly, it makes sense when he was, like, pulling all kinds of women out of, like, random places. Because you're like, it's not a bad-looking guy. If he could chat it up, then it's like... Yeah, it's just a, just a little off-putting to me. But no, we, We're going to talk about that, Nara. I'm glad you said that. Because Court TV has, and in, you know, recent eras, TikTok, whatever social media platform it might be, that's the new hot one of the day, that makes these cases so much more visible there's so much more access and so many more details that we we hear about um so the menendez murders became arguably one of the most famous criminal cases of the late 20th century because there's high intensity drama family drama hollywood lifestyle high profile connections to actors dramatic testimony of obviously the graphic murders and graphic events that happened in their lives and Cable TV had a new medium, a new channel called Court TV, where they literally had constant coverage of the trial as it played out. Cameras in the courtroom. The proceedings were nationally broadcast on the new Court TV, which carried out not only the trial, but endless hours of coverage before and after each day's proceedings. 
helping fuel a national obsession that ironically enough, these high profile cases became probably the most well-known down the line a few years with OJ Simpson. That actually was about a year later. Isn't it convenient that both of those things happened at the same, it was a perfect storm of things for both of those um, cases to really just go viral in a sense in the nineties, I guess that's what you would call going viral in the nineties is just the constant coverage and stuff. It's almost eerie how they like the timelines intersected and they were able to, you could even say that this court TV and broadcasting this for everyone to see may have started America's obsession with the true crime type of stuff, being really interested in the cases and doing a lot of your own research and coming to your own conclusions. So that can't be minimized that the exposure for these cases happened at the perfect time. It always makes me wonder too, though, is it, would it be different had they not been socialite guys? They're rich, but would it have been different had they not been? Because we do see nowadays, like Chris Watts wasn't fucking rich by any means. His wife had money. He did not really. He was just some guy that was overweight that lost a bunch of weight and then killed his whole family. So it's interesting to see, has the obsession morphed? Because like you were saying, OJ and the Menendez brothers, those were both really wealthy, famous in their own right. The Menendez brothers weren't famous, but they were from a rich family. OJ Simpson was famous. Do you think since that brought people in, since that got people into true crime, do you think... The cases keep you like, where do you think the info stays from? Can I say this, Lisa? It's a combination of both elements that nowadays there's such an oversaturation, like Naira mentioned with TikTok, with Twitter, podcasts. Yep. Check us out. I fry pod. Don't get it twisted. Rate, review, subscribe. Five stars only, baby. <laughs> Wait, I thought Nairo was going to talk about prison TikTok because that just blows my mind. There is like, literally prison TikTok, Jules. People like, yeah, don't yeah. have their phones in prison that make like, TikToks. Yeah, yeah. and that's what I where well, that's where I thought that he was going with that comment because are they? Well, we can talk about this later, but they're the status of the brothers and stuff. But the fact that you can go into prison and have your phone and just be doing what I do on my bed at home is mind boggling. I know, right? It's a gift and a curse because you hear all the time about how like awful the world is now because every news cycle is 24 seven and you're hearing things constantly. You're just constantly overstimulated. That obviously plays into it as well. Both these trials came in the nineties when TV was just starting to be super popular. Every person, every family pretty much like had a TV or whatever at this point. And now with social media pretty much running everyone's lives with TikTok and YouTube and everything, the, these older type of cases and older things are starting to come back to the forefront uh, because people are starting to do their own research and just stumble upon it on their own. As opposed to back in the day, you would have to watch the news. Like now, you don't have to watch anything. You can get an email. You basically can watch with, the crimes in real time almost. Right, exactly. Like live tweeting and live streams. The landscape has completely changed. I don't think it can be emphasized enough how this was the tip of the iceberg before we got into this cycle of constant news coverage. Uh, yeah, it's a great segue, honestly, because as we see a year later at the height of all this, 
the OJ case happens and it was almost like the perfect storm because this case was like a little appetizer. It's like, oh, we've never heard of the Menendez brothers, but it happened in Hollywood. Well, in 1994, everybody on the fucking planet knew who OJ Simpson was, at least in the English speaking world, if you watched football once or twice. So this was a good, yeah, like a good lead up to that for a lot of people, I'm sure. But I want to talk a little bit about the actual trial too and some of the key players. We have to say the main focus should be on Dr. Ann Burgess. She played such a critical role in determining the outcome of this case. Her psychological profile that she gave the FBI about classifications of crime scenes and her characterizing the Menendez crime scene as having, quote, a high risk of detection. She said that one of the indicators of detection would be getting evidence on one's person. And given the location, the type of weapon, there's a high probability that some of the blood from the close range firing of multiple shots would have in some way gotten onto the person or persons who committed the crime. The second is, of course, location. The small area in which the crime occurred. And the noise from multiple guns. And that it's in August when doors are open and windows are open. And people are out and about walking their dogs, having drinks on the porch, smoking weed out back. One of the main cruxes of the prosecution's case was also the taped confession, of course, of the exchanges between Eric and Dr. Ozeal, his therapist. Realistically, anybody who's ever heard about anything related to true crime or crime in general, uh, you know that a confession on tape is basically one of the most damning, damaging pieces of evidence imaginable. Like... That's your voice, right? Yup. That's you that said that, that you did that. Yup. Okay. You're fucked. That probably would have made this case wrap up a lot quicker had that just been a cut and dry, boom, here we go. Here's the information, tapes of his confession. But again, there was that issue with admissibility because of doctor-patient confidentiality. So figuring out whether the tapes with the confessions fell under that doctor-patient privilege took, as we said, two full years, two freaking years with lawsuits and appeals flying back and forth between the prosecution and the Menendez's lawyers. And then finally, the Supreme Court of California ruled that two of the three tapes were eligible to be used in trial, including the one that contained Lyle's admission of guilt. So that was included, not excluded. After two years of going back and forth, finally, the California Supreme Court ruled that based on the fact that they had a third party involved, Judah Lon Smith had heard these tapes, and that it didn't necessarily fall under doctor patient privilege. They opened this up and said these are actually admissible as evidence. Obviously, the brothers could no longer claim they were innocent because they had a taped confession of one of them having said that they did it. So that refutes any proclamation of innocence they might have originally made. There's at this point that their defensive strategy shifted to saying that it was justification for the abuse they'd been treated with over the years at the hands of their parents. Again, Dr. Burgess's characterizations of the crime scene and its brutal nature become relevant to describe the brother's state of mind when this happened. Obviously, with the chaotic nature, the excessive nature of killing them so impactfully with multiple fucking 12-gauge shots, it shows that they were violently driven and violently almost maddened, I would say. Their lawyer, Leslie Abramson, actually became 
quite a star during the trial, argued that the two were acting in self-defense after growing up in such a violent and traumatizing home. But I got to throw in a stopper here. I got to throw a hard stop. We, we could go on for a while about this. We have a lot more to get into with this case. So guys, do us a favor. Rate, review, subscribe. As always, hit the merch, hit the Patreon, hit the reviews and tell everybody what you like, what you don't like. We want honest feedback. We want to know what you guys think about this case to this point and our previous cases. Tell us the case we should be doing. Come on and join us. And thank you again. Check back with us next week. Everybody have a great morning, afternoon, evening, whatever y'all are doing. Be safe. Have fun. See you in part two. Sorry to get off topic here, but Lisa, I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at your po- your Gouda Fuda post. That Detroit pizza place. That looks so freaking good. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So there's another one? Like Ironborn is already like in like one of my favorites in Pittsburgh, but there's now another one? Yeah. It's called Driven. It is so, so good. It looks like sex. It was. It was. So go follow my foodie page. It's Gouda Fuda. Shameless plug. I love it. That worked out great. But no, it's I, absolutely delicious. And yeah, I was shocked too because I did also believe that Ironborn was the only uh one in town, but there's a there's a competitor on the list. But they're so similar that at first I actually thought maybe Ironborn rebranded, not gonna lie. But no, not the case. Just a just a sister shop. Oh low key Detroit style pizza is like the best. It's the best world of crispy, the crispy crushed. But but also has like the benefits of like the fluffy pan style as well. Yeah, it is delicious. So there's, a, there's a there's a ton of them out here now too. And they load up the topping, so you literally can't go wrong. So good. Well, for, we'll have to for go. you, it's perfect. For you, it's perfect. They put like bricks of cheese on there. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They didn't skimp. But I am so I am sorry, Jules. My apologies. We'll stay on topic. I'll allow it. Only because that pizza looks so fucking good. I want it. It looks so good. I'm just like starving. Let's-